It's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Nancy Barnes. Nancy Barnes is editor and executive vice president of the Houston Chronicle. Prior to joining the Houston Chronicle, she was editor and senior vice president of the Minneapolis Star Tribune, which won a Pulitzer Prize for local news coverage during her tenure. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Nancy Barnes. that warm welcome. Let me introduce our panelists here today. To my left is Mickey Edwards, who represented Oklahoma's 5th District in Congress for 16 years. He now serves as Vice President of the Aspen Institute, where he directs a bipartisan fellowship for elected public officials. His most recent book is provocative, The Parties Versus the People, How to Turn Republicans and Democrats into Americans. <laughs> we'll be talking about that. Okay. Johan Neem is an historian of civil society at Western Washington University. He's the author of Creating a Nation of Joiners, Democracies and Civil Society in Early National, Mass uh, Early Na National Massachusetts. And he will publish his second book later this year titled Democracy Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America. Over here we have Jennifer Murchia. She's an historian of American political rhetoric at Texas A&M University, focusing on discourse as it relates to citizenship, democracy, and the president. She is the author of Founding Fictions and also chairs the Public Address Division of the National Communication Association. And last but not least, Stephen Petro is the civilities columnist for the Washington Post and the go-to source for modern manners. He's in a lot of demand. <laughs> I'm watching. Uh -huh. All right. He also writes about digital ethics for USA Today and was previously a journalist for Wired, Time, and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. Okay, so we were asked to keep this focused on what it means to be an American, and in particular, we're talking about good citizenship. So we talk about good citizenship as if it means engaging in conversation, voting, participating in our community. Talk to me about what it means to be uh, uncivil, or where does civil disobedience fit in this? How un-American or American is it to protest in Selma, Vietnam, or the current bathroom wars? Jen, take that one on. <laughs> Uh, well, so my research on the history of American citizenship suggests that we are actually at our best as citizens when we are being critical, when we're protesting. Um, so one of my favorite quotations is from John Dickinson. Um, you, you know this. Uh, letters uh, from a farmer in Pennsylvania. And you guys haven't heard of him, but probably. But um, his book was the most read book before Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And he wasn't... Um, he was really important during the revolution, but he wasn't actually a revolutionary. He didn't end up um, signing the Declaration of Independence. Um, but uh, the things that he said during the Stamp Act crisis um, in 1764 really sort of set in motion what ended up being revolutionary ideas. And um, my favorite thing that he said is, uh, he's talking about some new law that's been passed by parliament. And he says, ought not therefore we to judge Ought not we to investigate facts, to look into designs, to search out causes? And ought we not to judge based on nothing finer than our liberty and our happiness? 
And as a subject, right, of the crown, you were not supposed to judge the actions of government. You were supposed to obey. Uh, so it was absolutely revolutionary to say that we ought to judge. Um, and so for me, that is what we ought to do as citizens. Um, I think that that's still fundamental to how we think about ourselves. So Johan, some of the protesters during uh, the most recent political elections were less than uh, polite. Were they uh, the Americans at their best? Well, <laughs> I think Americans at their best, and I will, I will follow Jen's comment, are, are at their best when they're being critical and thoughtful. And one of the challenges is how to be critical and thoughtful while also being respectful. And I think John Dickinson is a great example of yeah. someone who you know, understood the power of words, understood the power of protest, but also understood the power of listening and the importance of, of deliberation. And, and I think we need both. And so I would say that you know, we should protest um, and we should bear witness, but at the same time, you know, we need to be respectful of each other and we need to see ourselves in each other. So let's talk a little bit about polite discourse, um, which seems to be you know, somewhat lacking. I was talking to a colleague on my way out the door and I said, how do you think about American citizenship? And he says to me, it seems to me the political system is completely broken. I don't think it would be any better if we had elected Hillary Clinton. How are we supposed to function as a society when politicians, politicians and individuals don't just disagree, but they venomously dislike each other? Mickey. <laughs> well, you know, I, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen already told me he's going to disagree with whatever I said. Um, but he did it very civilly. Um, well, I think there's two, two levels here. One is that I, I think we have an obligation to uh, be very forceful in uh, speaking out when we think things are wrong, when they're bad for the country, when they're uh, things that, that we really should not countenance. But people who are in public office, which uh, I was, you know, we are a diverse country. There's 320 million of us. Uh, some of you feel very strongly one way, others the other way. And when, when you, you have to be able to build the bridges, you have to be able to, you know, fund the military, you have to be able to, you know, ensure justice, all these kinds of things. And, and so when you have people who are serving in Congress and the legislatures or whatever, you also have to be able to sit down, have your fight, you know, be, be as strong and forceful as you need to be. Uh, and then at the end of the day, you need to be able to sit down and respectfully work out where you can, find the, the common ground if there is one, so that you can actually govern the country. That, that's, that's where some of the civility is getting in the way. Because, and, and it's not because the civility, in, incivility, is based on really serious things. Sometimes it's because you belong to the wrong club. I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're, you know, I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican, and therefore we can't talk and, and we demonize each other. That's where it becomes wrong. All right, so uh, Stephen, in your column, uh, you write a lot about being civil to each other. In one column you talk, you wrote about Megan Ralphs Roper, who talked about how Twitter and uh, specifically helped her to, uh, in her use of it to deflect angry messages, helped her to promote you know, some civil discourse, and that you try to emulate that for a while. Tell me what you learned by that. So just to identify Megan, she is the granddaughter of the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church, 
best known for um, uh, We Hate Fags and, and other, other things like that. And she'd been part of the church for a long time, and she found through engaging with people on Twitter in, in a direct and authentic way with humor, she was able to, um, to start conversations. And I did this experiment with my readers as well because I get, you know, I always say that I love people who agree with me, but I, I love my haters just as much because they're an opportunity to, to bridge what Mickey was talking about. And so I think you all know that when you, often when we write via the internet, it, it feels like we're just going to this black hole and we, we, we act like we're drunk, we're coarse, like there's not a human being on the other end. And so the experiment I started was to write back, and if Jen had written me, I would have started with, Dear Jen, I would have personalized it, and I would have said, thank you, you know, thank you for writing me. I actually am a person. I'm not, I'm not a bot. And then I would have said, you know, if you were calling me names, why don't, we, why don't you tell me what actually is the issue that you want to disagree with me about? And so what I found was about two-thirds of the folks then wrote me back and said, you know, first of all, they apologized for the language they'd used, and then they got into the substance of what they wanted to disagree with me about. And then we were able to actually have a productive conversation where we heard each other, and I think we came a little bit closer, but definitely the temperature came down and there was, there was connection. Is there a lesson for the rest of us in that? I think, there, I think there is a lesson, and it doesn't need to just be through, um, you know, through the anonymity of, of email, but we need to listen to each other. And I was joking with Mickey in the green room that I was going to disagree with everything he said, but I did say I was going to listen to him first because so often I think we know that we just reflexively, if somebody is a Democrat and we're not, or they're a Republican and we're not, we'll just come at them. And it's really important to listen and also to uh, have you know, give and take and to not use inflammatory language. I'm writing a column uh, tomorrow for the Washington Post about actually the language of the left and how if you make any kind of transgression, you'll be called a racist, a bigot, a misogynist, a homophobe, a transphobe, and where does that really get us? And it doesn't really get us anywhere. So we need to get past those, those sort of words that um, are weapons and speak authentically and listen hard. Yeah, Stephen, can I add one thing to that? Absolutely. And that is that um, in order to be able to do what you're talking about, you really need to know people who disagree with you. You, you need <laughs> to be able to engage with them, to, you know, and too many Americans. So the problem is not all people in, in politics. I mean, uh, Americans have more or less divided themselves into people who only hang with people who think like they do who watch you know, Fox like they do or MSNBC like they do. Uh, and part of getting to the civility that Stephen's talking about is for us to make a conscious effort to get to know people who don't start from the same place and try to understand why they come from where they do and uh, be less divided into, uh, into rival camps. Yeah. Oh, go. You know, and yes, we hang with our own tribe, but I think we also know from our social media pages our friends, you know, mirror our beliefs you know, like nothing else. And so we're in these silos and we're shouting uh, to the world, but, you know, we all, you know, we're all saying the same thing. And so we're not having that kind of so discourse across. How do we get out of those uh, self-made echo chambers? Johan, any thoughts? 
Well, I mean, I think one way is, at least one way that I can ex talk about it through experience is by being part of organizations that are not explicitly political. So, you know, it's through my children's sports teams that I meet different kinds of people. It's through other kinds of organizations that have some other goal in mind that force neighbors who may, you know, neighbors, not just your own neighbors, sometimes we live near people like ourselves, but neighbors in a broader sense of people in the town to interact with each other around their shared commitment to children, their shared commitment to baseball, their shared commitment to something unrelated to their party or their particular political platform. And then you start to know people and they turn out to be interesting and thoughtful and moral and ethical and kind and people you would trust with your kids. <laughs> and then you say to yourself, well, how do we, then what do we, then we disagree politically, but you learn to care for that person nonetheless. And yeah. I think you also find commonalities yeah, that you might absolutely. not otherwise see, and that can be a real, that can be a basis of, of a relationship. Yeah, I mean, we're political, but we're not only political. And the media and the political parties um, gain when we treat one another as partisans first and as citizens or friends second, right? Um, and so they've trained us. They've divided us into this camp or that camp, you're blue or you're red, you watch this news or that news, you read this source, you trust that one, not the other one, right? And that language of division, that those institutionalizations of division um, serve them, right? So they have a built-in audience because they know they have you <laughs> and not them, that's fine, they don't care about them. Um, and so everything about our political culture over the last, I would say, 15 years has really been about um, separating us. You don't see um, in rhetoric, we call it the language of transcendence, right? Um, appeals to the nation, appeals to what brings us together, what we have in common, um, the fact that we like baseball, the fact that we love our kids, um, right? So if, if, if any of you guys saw the Jimmy Kimmel thing today, did anybody see that? I saw it on my Facebook. Um, like that was an appeal to transcendence, right? He said, you know, this whole story about his son and the heart surgery that he needed and very touching. Um, and at the end, he's like, you know, it's not about whether you're Republican or you're Democrat. It's that we all want our kids to do well. Like we all want our, we, we love our kids, right? We want them to be healthy. Um, that's an appeal to transcendence, right? It's like, don't focus on the division. Instead, focus on what we have to in common. And if we can figure that out, then maybe we can solve problems. But right now, the way that the world is aligned, it's about dividing us as much as possible because people benefit from that. We don't benefit from that. Can I ask? Sorry, you're in the media. Ms. <laughs> Moderator, can I ask the audience a question? Just with a show, of, with a show of hands. Who would like to see more transcendence? Like everyone. We so, and that's it. what I find yeah. from yeah. the people who write me overall. Yeah. You know, we're all suffering yeah. with, with this level of yeah. instability, and people want to find ways to come together because there's so many ways that we are disconnected, and yeah. that's painful. It is. One of the interesting, one of the interesting things, that, and I think the way that Jen phrased it is that you know, we're being divided and categorized and, and, and the media and the, and, and the partisan machinery is working to, in other words, we become consumers rather than producers of our own public opinion. And, and this is a big change. In the 19th century, when you had the temperance movement and the abolition movement and the, these kinds of movements, for the first time, people were talking about this thing called public opinion. And what was amazing about it was 
that citizens produced it themselves. And they would go out and they would talk and they would have lectures and they would, they would exhort their neighbors, probably annoy their neighbors sometimes, but, <laughs> but they would talk and public opinion was a production of their talk. And now we tend to consume public opinion designed for us and we call it public opinion. But in a sense, we're not, we're not the producers of it anymore. And that's, I think that would help us. Too. Yeah, let, let, let me, I want to add one thing. I, so I'm not a Hamiltonian. I wouldn't go and see that, but, I, but I'm a Madisonian. <laughs> and I would, I would pay a lot of money for a ticket to see Mad a show called Madison. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, Madison and, and the founders gave us both a great blessing and a great curse. And, and the blessing was. A, a system of government in which we, the people, are ultimately, through our representatives, we're in charge. We decide whether we go to war. We decide whether or not we have higher taxes or lower. We do it. That, that's our system. That's the blessing. The curse is that that requires a certain kind of person to be able to manage your own government, which means you have to be engaged. You, you have to be both passionate enough to be engaged and dispassionate enough to be able to look at things objectively. You, you have to be interested, but you also have to be disinterested enough to look not just at your own certain circumstances, but at, at the collective good. So, I mean, there, there, there are obligations on us if we're gonna get past this problem that, that we have. I was very surprised to hear you say you thought we'd become consumers of opinion because I would have suggested the other the, the opposite. It seems to me that social media has made it easy for everybody to express their opinion, to go off on a tirade when they want to. Um, I wanted to ask about what we thought about the fact that people can tweet before they think and how that affects the public discourse. <laughs> would somebody like to take that on? <laughs> well, one of my big rules is do not drink and tweet. <laughs> I hope you'll take, take that to heart and, and don't drive at the same time. But it's, it's a metaphor as well. We, um, uh, you know, we do that, and you know, we've been having a little bit of a subtext about um, political partisans here. And I, I will say that I think one factor in, in the increased... Um, uh, lack of civility is the role modeling that we get from from our politicians, and that. Uh, and I'm not only talking about Donald Trump, but I am talking about Donald Trump. But but <laughs> but many politicians, and that kind of modeling is is very is very um, viral, and we also see it, you know, from celebrities and athletes and all sorts of people. And you know, it, when we see it on our big screens and little screens, we emulate that. Kids emulate that, which is a big problem, and, and it becomes a standard. And um, that's troubling. Well, there's an, I, I've always said um, I've taught courses in how to how to campaign for office and how to think about politics and government. I always said if it fits on a bumper sticker, it's wrong. It's automatically <laughs> wrong. Uh, and and you know you can expand that just a little bit. That if you can say it in a tweet, you're not saying very much. So I'm going to put that on my bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> We could go down this vein for quite a while, but let me just switch gears for a minute. And since we're talking about the election uh, and uh, politics, does what it means to be an American, did that change uh, in the current election? And do you think in particular that the international perception of what it means to be an American changed? Johan, let's start with you. Okay. Um, so did it change? It's 
the historian in me says it's too early to tell, but, mm -hmm. I'll, but I can talk about how it felt different. Um, and it felt different because as an immigrant myself, I always thought that you, American is something you become, and it doesn't matter if you're native born or not native born, because it's not in blood and it's not in color and it's, it's a creed. And that creed has, has certain virtues associated with it that, that Mickey was talking about earlier, that citizens have to treat each other with certain respect, they have to have certain commitments, and those aren't natural. And so they're no more natural to someone born here than they are to an immigrant. And so I think in some ways, I found it harder to find a home politically because the language on both sides of what it means to be an American have become very natural, and they aren't in the same way. This thing we, this thing we have to all somehow learn how to be. So Jen, uh, she confessed to us that Trump was her favorite demagogue. I thought I would share that. Sometimes but it's funny. Do you think democracy and what it means to be American uh, changes when the president embraces strong men? Or is Trump simply keeping his enemies closer? Did you say strong men or straw men? Strong men. Oh, okay. Dictators. Strong is a fallacy. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, does it change when he embraces strong men? Because for years yeah. we have been the, uh, the nation that stood for you know, human rights and democracy, if it could possibly make sense for a country, and yeah. the la you know, the, so he's been reaching out to near dictators all across the globe, and so I'm wondering how that changes what it means to be an American. Yeah, it's a good question, um, and, and I, think, I think it requires a really thoughtful response, um, because certainly uh, I think that other nations have looked to us for moral leadership, and we've sort of prided ourselves on providing that. Um, and so the potential is that in negotiating or treating with people, receiving people, the, the White House, whatnot, who um, have serious violations of human value, um, that it, it, it diminishes us. And, and so that's a real problem. But then on the other hand, the the slight little hope, you know, that I have is that he knows what he's doing, um, and I don't know. I know. Um, you know, you gotta have some hope. But so that that maybe there's a reason behind it that I can't understand. You know, so I always felt that way with Obama. I didn't, um, I didn't always understand what he was doing or why he was doing it, but I sort of trusted him to know what he was doing, and that he would have more information than I did, and therefore, hopefully, that he was making good decisions. Um, and I feel like, and I make a distinction between thinking and feeling, and I feel like I ought to give Trump that same credibility, but it doesn't look good. I don't know. <laughs> I, when you know. Someone doesn't read books. I know. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I have some small hope that it makes sense to him. I heard an answer that he gave, and I don't know if it was right, but that he was trying to like triangulate with North Korea, and that mm -hmm. there was some reason for embracing dictators. But then I also saw like he has a new hotel, and Ivanka's on a poster, and you know. I, um... 
Well, I mean, you could make an argument for keeping your enemies closer. And so, but I, I haven't heard that articulated yet. So I'm just curious as to how we think we're being perceived around the world. I mean, one way, so I recently taught in my class the model of Christian charity. And by the time we got to a city on a hill, I started thinking about how, what does that mean for America to be a, a city on a hill today? And it's not clear what kind of city on a hill we are, what, 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 what we are representing. Um, but I do know that you know, the world is like everyone else, governed by norms and ethics. And while the history of the United States, in terms of embracing strongmen or undemocratic leaders, there's, no, there's nothing new there. Um, what is new, I think, is that when we, are, when we are standing for a certain kind of language and aspiration, as a superpower, economically, politically, those aspirations gain a kind of moral hold on the world. And if we don't aspire for those things, even if we're living in the real world, it requires getting our hands dirty and sometimes doesn't require getting our hands dirty, but we do it anyway, at least those aspirations from a powerful country matter. And we yeah. wouldn't want to lose that. And I, I agree with what Yon said. I, but I, and I think there's also a non-philosophical answer to your question, and that is, uh, at least in the past, whether you agree with it or not, the United States acted toward the world with a certain set of standards, values, and, and we were predictable. Our, our, our allies knew that we would be there. Uh, other people, you know, people knew we'd be critical of this. Or, or it, now it's, it's, nobody knows. I mean, it, it changes hourly. Uh, and so I think that a lot of our allies don't feel they can depend on the United States anymore because they, uh, they don't know what we'll do. They don't know what position we'll take. I mean, you know, one, one, one minute uh, we, we think NATO is, is useless and the next minute we think NATO is important. And, you know, and, uh, and things like that, I think, are unnerving to countries that, you know, depend on support from the United States because they're not sure what we're going to do, which, by the way, is an argument for... Who, who I think is the villain in the piece, and I think the villain in the piece is the Congress, because the Congress, under the Constitution, the Congress has the power. Congress has power over foreign policy, not the president. Con Congress has power over international commerce. Congress has power over taxes, tax bills, and spending, all that. And uh, we have members of Congress in both parties today you know, in this administration and the previous one, who act like they work for the White House, like whoever's in the White House is the boss. And, and that is a serious problem. It allows presidents, whoever, whether, whether you thought Obama was bad or good, or whether you think Trump is good or bad, uh, it allows them to run without the checks that the Constitution envisions. And that, that's really scary. Did you have a point you wanted to make, Stephen? Yeah, I wanted to make two. So I was in, I was in London last week, and I, I asked just about everybody I could this particular question. What do you think of, of, of our president and of our government these days? And whether they were conservative or, or, or liberal, they were very unhappy with how President Trump is, is presenting himself, how he, how he communicates his, his use of Twitter. Um, part of it's the disruption. Part of it seems to be the um, the lack of consistency, the knee jerk, um, you know, the knee jerk element. Uh, so that was that was kind of stunning. That was crossing political political divides over there. But I think also in, inherent in this question is is a little bit of a misnomer, and you know, it feels like we're at a point where everything is going off the tracks, where the center is not holding, where the ugly. 
you know, the ugly heart of America is, is being exposed. But I, I look back, I look back in our history, and I'll be... Uh, I also look back in our history. Yes, I know. <laughs> and it's very scary to have a story. That's just it. I look yeah, forward yeah. to our... I know. <laughs> but, you know, I think we need to remember sort of what's part of our DNA. And, you know, part of that DNA is how the original inhabitants of this land were treated by the newcomers. You know, the history of slavery, the internment of the Japanese in the 1940s. Uh, there is an ugly thread that is, is part of what it means to be an American, and we don't like seeing that in the mirror. And I think this is one of the times where we are seeing it again, and it's very troubling. That's really well put. It's an excellent point. You know, I think we all, everybody at some point had uh, immigrants in their background. My uh, family came from Canada. They were French-Canadian, and it, it puzzles me to this day why they felt they had to hide their accents and change their names because they thought they would be accepted from Canada to Massachusetts, but that's what the fear was 100 years ago. So, okay, so I want to follow up on a point that a couple of you have made, and then I want to talk about your research. Uh, you talked about, and I agree with you, that you know, our politicians are setting a really bad example for civil discourse, and some of our uh, the people who we look up to, the athletes and the movie stars, are doing the same. Uh, and Mickey, you've talked about how uh, that we have a system that makes civility impossible because the political parties have stolen it and it belongs to the parties and not the people. So I'd like to ask each of you, how do the people take that back? How do we take our country back? Well, I mean, one thing you do is you start changing election laws. And so, um, you know, whether it's redistricting, gerrymandering, or whether it's the primary system. Uh, so I, I gave this example. I would imagine a lot of you in this room are big supporters of Ted Cruz, and a lot of you probably don't like Ted Cruz. But, but I, so I did that. I was telling you in, in the green room about how Ted Cruz got to be a senator, uh, which was because he ran in the primary, as you know, against David Dewhurst, and Dewhurst beat him pretty badly in the primary, but then they had to have a runoff, uh, and for a lot of reasons... Uh, Cruz won. You know, the research I've shown, you may disagree, is that there's a good chance that if they had both been on the ballot in November, Dewhurst would have been your next senator. Uh, but under Texas law, Texas has a law that if you run for your party's nomination and you don't get it, you're not allowed to be on the ballot in November. Uh, and uh, so Utah has a similar law. There one-tenth of one percent of the population of Utah in a convention was able to deny their incumbent senator, Robert Bennett, uh, renomination. That's the law in 46 states. So when I was in Congress, I was the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Foreign Operations that gives foreign aid to uh, democracies. And if you really looked at the way we allowed the parties small groups of people, insiders, to keep people off the ballot they don't like, uh, and, and through redistricting to keep people from being able to vote in that election that they don't like, you know, we wouldn't give foreign aid to the United States because we wouldn't think of it as a democracy. And, and so we really do need to make some serious changes in our election laws or we're not going to make it better. Jen, jump in here because I know you're particularly interested in this topic of how we've become uh, moved from citizens to being all partisans, and how do we yeah. get back to being citizens? Yeah, uh, everything he said is right and, and frightening. Um, I saw that we're on some new democracy watch list, like the United States is on some, like our democracy is failing. Yeah. 
according to some international organization. Um, I think that the way we take the power back is partially by withdrawing our consent from the system. Um, and it's, it's a problem that I think about a lot, right? This difference between um, tacit consent and explicit consent uh, in politics. So tacit consent is what you have because you were born somewhere. So you, you, know, you, you agree to the laws of the country because you were born there. Or if you, um, you, know, you travel to Florida and they have different driving laws and you can't turn on a red light, well, you've tacitly consented to that because you, you're in Florida. I don't know if that's true. Um, sorry, I made that up. Um, but explicit consent is where um, you actually agree to something, right? So like you have to sign those terms of consent and we don't ever read them because they're too long. But right, you're, you, you have pushed the button that says that you're explicitly agreeing to it. Um, and so uh, he and I are both fans of Thomas Jefferson. And one of the things, one of the wacky ideas that Thomas Jefferson had was that the earth belongs always to the living generation. And what he thought was that each generation ought to get to assent, give their explicit consent to the laws under which they are obligated to obey. Um, and so he thought that meant that we ought to get to have a constitutional convention every generation. <laughs> Yeah, and he said, I mean, it's, it's unsettling, right? It's a destabilizing idea that we would have a constitutional convention every 18 years, 25 years, however long it was. Um, but if you think about it, it's a way to take the country back, right? That you, you would say, well, okay, I, I still like that we're a republic, but I don't like this gerrymandering thing, and I don't like um, the fact that there isn't an election day holiday, and I don't like that there's only two political parties, and right, like there are things that we don't like. There are lots of things we like. Um, and so it's, it's destabilizing in the sense that it takes the power away from those who have entrenched power. Um, but it puts the power back in the hands of the people to get to consent to what they actually do want. Um, and so to me, um, something like that, and by the way, he suggested this to his friend James Madison um, in 1789 when James Madison was trying to get the Constitution passed, 1788. Um, James Madison was like, that is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, he, you, can, yeah, you can read the correspondence. It's sort of delightful in an 18th century way, right? Um, you know, Jefferson was like, well, I was talking to this peasant woman in France, and I realized, you know, blah, blah, blah. And James Madison is like, in a very James Madison way, right? You guys probably know the quote better than I do, but something like, that would um, defer the object to which we had, uh, you know, in mind, or something like, very but, but polite I, way of saying. I, I like, think there has to be a predicate to this, too. That, that I mean, uh, some of my Madisonian side coming out. I mean, I, th I think we do want the, the living generation to be able to make these. But I would be terrified if, if yeah. we had the laws being made only by people who watch Fox or an, an MSNBC. I mean, I would just, you know, it would all be awful. But that's the other part of Jefferson, right? Is that yeah. he, Jefferson didn't like many things about New England, but he did like the, what he called their ward republics, that they had a really strong, vibrant core of local democracy in their towns. And he said, and he actually wanted to try to cultivate that in Virginia. And his reason was, if you're going to have this kind of system where the people are consistently being empowered to make choices, then they have to consistently practice being citizens, yes. consistently practice having political power and using it right. so, that, so that it's not this 20 years suddenly we have to trust the people, that the people are prepared consistently to engage in governance. And so that part of Jefferson 
is linked to the part that wants him, that, that is concerned with the question of consent over time, I think. Yeah, it's, oh, sorry, you go ahead. I, I feel compelled to jump in as a UVA alum, which <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Jefferson is heralded to point out that the story of Jefferson underscores the point that you made so well that there's a lot of ugly history that is part of us because he, of course, held slaves there while he was having all of these high thoughts about American society. Absolutely. So just want to yeah. put that out there. Stephen, over to you. Well, while my colleagues are talking about Jefferson and <laughs> others, I want to talk just for a moment about Emily Post, Judith Martin, and, <laughs> and, and some other manners of mavens. Because I've often been asked, you know, how did I, how did I get into this business? How do I understand what, what this is all about? And if you look closely, when Emily Post first wrote Etiquette, it was um, right after World War I, and that was in the wake of so much social dislocation, economic upheaval, and class, um, kind of class warfare. And part of what she was doing, and she's been very, she was very conscious about writing this way, was helping to ease that kind of social anxiety and to give that anxiety a name. And then when you look at uh, Miss Manners, Judith Martin, in the 60s, 70s, you, know, you have women's rights, gay rights, um, the Vietnam War, again, a period of great um, fracture and disruption. And I think we're in another one, another one of those periods. And so the takeaway is, what do, what do we do? We, I think we need to understand the forces at work, the powers that sometimes push us to act in the ways that we are not our best selves, and then you know, to own that, to take responsibility for our actions and for our words and to realize the power they have. And I think that when you do that, starting at home, starting with family, starting in schools, you can, make, you can make an impact, and we can start to take this back in the direction everyone in this room said they wanted. So, um, Johan, uh, some people, their way of taking it back is to just break away from the United States. So you have uh, your separatists in Colorado, and you have your separatists in Texas, and here we have some separatists in uh, California. So I'm interested in uh, your research into early society in Massachusetts and New England because your talk about volunteers and civil associations versus the need for social controls to keep us all together. So are there overriding lessons uh, from your research that translates into what we're seeing today? In particular, what would those early governors think about these separatist movements? What would they do? Well, I'm not sure that New York wanted to grant independence to Vermont. Um, and I think that took some struggle. Um, well, I think this is a real challenge, right? That, that the United States was formed, in a sense, in a rebellion against an empire that they were very committed to. I mean, Americans were loyal Britons, you know? And being part of the British Empire was to be part of the world's largest, and they would say freest, political economic, military power, and to break away from that, um, really, you know, put, to put ourselves back there, you say, why did they do that? They must have had some good reasons. At the same time, Lincoln says, secession is the spirit of anarchy, right? That, that in a democracy, we need these two dual elements, that there is a level at which, whether we experience it somewhat or, or want to call it a kind of coercive element, that if we don't have solidarity, disagreement becomes violent. And so the kind of trust 
that bridges partisan divides, that bridges ethnic divides, that bridges religious divides. Our whole history is full of people struggling with how do you develop that kind of trust? Because democracy, as a lot of us have been pointing, requires adults to disagree as adults. And to disagree re without violence requires solidarity. And so you do need both sides of this. And I think um, separatism sometimes is also the way of dodging that. Um, we also have a separatist movement in the Pacific Northwest, incidentally, the Cascadia movement. It's, um, <laughs> but but I, would, I would say that what we really need to do is figure out how we work together, and that requires some limits on our capacity to be fully autonomous in whatever our political or other goals are. Well, it seems to me, Mickey, that you know, part of taking back uh, the system from the you know, two political parties uh, entails fixing the nominating system. Because we all know that if you're a Democrat, you run to the left to get nominated. If you're a Republican, you run to the right just to get nominated. And then you have to sort of somehow get the rest of America to come with you. So um, how do we fix that system of who we nominate to run for election in the United States? Well, there, there's been legislation introduced in Texas, as well as in a number of other states, to do what the state of Washington and the state of California have done. Uh, both of those states, uh, Washington State in 2006, California uh, in 2010, I think, uh, got rid of party primaries. They got rid of party redistricting. Uh, they now, in an election, uh, everybody runs on the same ballot, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Greens, you know, and uh, the top two, even if they end up being in the same party, end up running against each other. Uh, but in that period at the end, well, last time when Kamala Harris got elected to the Senate in California, uh, she was running against another Democrat in the runoff, but they both had to appeal to the entire electorate. Because you can't just say, well, I'm more left than you are. No, I'm more left than you are. Because, you know, Republicans are going to vote in that race, too. And everything. So uh, that's now been introduced in a lot of places. There are now, I, it was 13 states when I wrote my book. I think it's now 15 uh, that have done away with party control of redistricting and have set up independent uh, redistricting commissions. So there are ways to get out of this. We, we, we have somehow... We, so Washington, Adams, Jefferson, uh, they, all, all of our founders said don't create political parties. And we did it. And we did it, and we're paying the price. And if we don't fix it, they're going to drag us down. So, uh, but but let me, let me, there's another piece here that, besides that. So uh, I don't know how many of you have uh, children or grandchildren uh, still in school or whatever. Uh, but if you check and see how little our public schools and private universities, how, how little they teach civics and critical thinking and, and the kinds of things you need to know in order to be a citizen. So that's all getting washed out of, of our system. And uh, if I had kids at school, I do have grandkids at school, you know, just to go in and, and start insisting, you know, that you've got to start teaching the humanities, the arts, you know, literature, you know, things that make you empathetic and able to think. And so uh, we, we just, uh, our public schools are not equipping people to make intelligent, thoughtful decisions as public citizens. So Steve and I, as a journalist, I have some concerns uh, that journalism is heading down that same path of, you know, 
We only fit in one ecosystem. I have a friend who's a top editor at Politico, and he says, so many of today's established media organizations have lost the trust of the right. So if you have just media organizations that represent the right and media organizations that represent the left, what does that mean for the future of our business? That's a really good question. And I'm going to dodge it while I think about that answer. Uh, for, <laughs> but uh, but um, Johan um, talked earlier about the media. And, and one thing that I guess does make me bristle is that when, we, when, when people talk about the media, and it's often in a, in a denigrating way, which was not how you said it, it's as though it's this monolith. It's, we're all this, it's mm -hmm. this one thing. And I feel very strongly that they're, they're different, um, they're different uh, institutions, they're different outlets. You know, the cable news group, Fox and MSNBC, they're one. Um, your paper, The Post, um, The Washington Post, you know, they're legitimate news organizations. And so I think it's really important for folks to just think that it's not one, one mass. Um, I agree with that. Uh, uh, but um, to, to your question, I, I do think that there are certain aspects of the media that are you know, feeding off of this, and, and, and it is, it is um, you know, it's such a cyclical thing, and it, because we're, we're condemning them, or that's, part, that's sort of inherent in the question, and yet we watch them. We, we're insatiable. And, um, you know, I feel like I sound like a Republican in some ways. And I'm pretty, it's all and right. I, you can do that. And I'm, 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 I'm a nonpartisan civilist. Um, <laughs> when I talk about personal responsibility and the actions that, that we choose to make. And that, that extends to what, you know, what channel do we click on as well. Okay, so they're giving me the uh, two-minute signal that we're going to turn over to the audience. I want to give everybody an opportunity to end on a positive note. You know, 60 seconds, what makes you feel good about being an American? Mickey. Well, I, I run a political leadership program uh, that has a lot of the young uh, mayors and, and members of Congress now and uh, lieutenant governors, state treasurers, all that. Uh, and we have among the we, – we saw two old people running, you know, in this last election. We, we have coming up in the, in the country a lot of really bright, good, young political leaders. And so I do have hope for the future. Excellent. Johan. Um, two things. One, as a historian, I can say that American democracy has never been perfect, and it's always been full of flaws and crises mm -hmm. and partisan press as the origins of our you know, mass press. And so in some ways, I have faith because it's always a work in progress and it's always an aspiration, but we've still been at it. And the other is I teach, and I have students who seem interested and they care about the world, and I think that's a really important thing. And so, so that gives me hope as well. All right. Jen. I am hopeful about America because, um, ah, you know, Americans are good. We might be divided right now, um, but, you know, like, think about if there was a hurricane. There would be people sandbagging, you know. Somebody's car pulls off the road. Somebody else stops to help them. Like, we're helpers, fundamentally. And the political leadership right now might say that America should stop helping the world. But Americans fundamentally want to help each other um, and help others. And so I think that that's our core value, and I think that we're going to continue to do that. All right, Stephen, close us out until we can take our questions. I'm going to use you all as what makes me hopeful. Uh, this is the third Smithsonian program I've done, and they've all been uh, well attended because people care 
about these issues. They want to come together. And so I think back to e pluribus unum, out of many one, and that is what I see here tonight. So. All right, time for our audience. Yes, we now have time to take some questions from all of you. There are two of us going around with microphones. Please raise your hand and we'll come to you. You could please say your first and last name before asking your question. We would greatly appreciate it, as this session is being recorded and will be um, published on our website, whatitmeanstobeamerican.org. Leave Lewis has your first question on the left. Thank you for your time, first of all. Thank you for the discussion. Um, not necessarily at a federal level, because that's pretty clear, but at a state and district level, how do we incentivize the new generation, the young voters, to engage in the process and, more than anything, learn about their local representatives, learn who's running for office, and you know, really participate in that process. Well, I say very quickly, although you, you do this now full time, you both do, but uh, I, after I left Congress, I taught at Harvard and then at Princeton, and I had a lot of young students and, uh, and would put them through the exercises, require them to uh, study you know, who is their member of Congress or state legislator, what, where do they come from on the issues, try to put yourself in their shoes. Uh, I think it starts in our schools. You, you have to get, uh, get them to understand what's at stake and who the people are and, and engage through debate. Otherwise, I mean, it, it, you got to get them when they're young, get them in the schools. And, and I don't mean in college. I mean, in high school, junior high school, that's where I learned it. Yeah, I would agree with that, that um, one of the things that surprises me or surprised me in the new Common Core, and I'm not taking a position on necessarily on the Common Core itself, but that its goal is college and career readiness. And if you think about the history of public schools, the goal is to bring a diverse society together and prepare them for citizenship, or at least right. that's a significant part of the goal. And if we've reduced our purposes of education to college and career readiness, which has always been part of it, then we are losing something. But the second thing, there have to be opportunities, right? There has to be local democracy, so people have to get involved. And so in a sense, there have to be structures in place that people feel that they're responsible and have places to be responsible locally. And that's how people become citizens, and that's how they get engaged. I did a podcast uh, right before the election, and it was with um, some college students. And they were, they were turned off to the presidential candidates. But then I asked them, well, what do you care about? And they care about you know, the economy, they care about the environment, they care about the schools, they care about the arts. So get involved in those issues that you care about. And run for office yourself. <laughs> One day. <laughs> School board. Thank you all. Thank you. Next Thank question you. is on your left. Hello. <clears throat> My name is Aminata Deremi. I have two questions. Um, the first question is for uh, Jennifer. I like the idea of explicit consent. Um, how do you feel about mandatory voting? <laughs> I do not have a problem with mandatory voting. Um, yeah, so, so here's the thing. Um, and so the, the logic of it is vox populi, vox di, the voice of the people is the voice of God, right? That the people cannot be wrong. And it's hard to accept, especially from a Madisonian perspective, right? Like, because he's afraid of the voice of the people. But if you really believe in democracy, well, I'm sorry. Well, they voted for me. I like that. No, I <laughs> but if you really believe it, right, then, then you have to say that whatever the people decide is right. So whatever constitution they, they put in place is actually the right constitution until it gets changed. And that's a hard thing to accept, right? Like, it's easy sort of 
if you really go down the Jeffersonian route, like it's easy to sort of say, well, intellectually, I get it. But it's hard to like, you know, <laughs> what does that mean really? What, what's going to happen? Um, so it's, it's tricky. But so yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of mandatory voting, which was your question. <laughs> Um, I'm a K through 12 teacher, um, and this question is for Mickey. Um, so I've encountered some shock and surprise. Right now I'm teaching fourth graders, they're nine years old, and we have a unit on propaganda and advertising techniques. And yeah. um, I, I was wondering, do you have any advice um, for K through 12 teachers for how to get their students? Oh, I, th I think that's absolutely, I don't know how to do this because it's not my field, but uh, you know, that's, you couldn't have a better question than that because one of the things that I detected in this last campaign was that we, nobody learns critical thinking anymore, which is how do you separate fact from fiction? How, do you, how are you able to listen to something and, and get other sources and say, well, who, who would say a different thing? What, what is the other point of view and all? Uh, and you can start that very young. You, you can start having your students in your class learn a variety of things, read this point of view, read this point of view, you know, analyze it, does that sound true to you? Let's look it up and see if it was actually true. So, I mean, that's, boy, that's important. If we could start teaching uh, our young people to um, think critically, uh, that, that would solve a lot of our problems. That's a great question. Thank you. We teach that at Texas A&M, so send your kids to us. <laughs> <laughs> Next question, on your right. Uh, hi, my name is uh, David Parmenter. Um, so I've been hearing over and over again from uh, uh, journalists or uh, lefties or whatever you want to call them uh, <laughs> that uh, the, the left yeah, the left needs to listen better to the right or engage the right or somehow it's it's our fault that we weren't listening to that half. Um, we're in Texas. We know that right and they don't want to talk to us. So how do you engage with someone that is not just not wanting to talk to you, but is fervently trying to get you out of existence? That's a great question. But I'd like to jump in and say, uh, so I am an independent as a journalist and not affiliated with either party, and I've voted across party lines, so I would prefer not to be called uh, a leftist. I, <laughs> I do think, uh, I'll be honest, I do think there are some issues. Newsrooms have become uh, increasingly, though, you know, as I talked about, uh, there's a partisan divide in a lot of newsrooms, and uh, it is a challenge to make sure people go out and talk to all sorts of different people and not just everybody who's in the blue city, but people who are in our red suburbs and other exurbs, and we all have to talk and listen more. And I think that that did not happen enough in the recent election. And uh, to that point, I agree with you. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's actually the question of civility um, and empathy. And, and it's, it's this like, so it's treating each other as partisans instead of citizens or people, right? But like, it's this way of denying human dignity, you know, by not listening to somebody else, not looking them in the eye and not saying like, why do you think that? Like, I don't understand. That's not what I think. That's not what I've heard. My news source says this, you know. I, I live in Texas. I'm surrounded by people who um, are Republican. And it's fascinating to me 
um, how different our news and information is. And I primarily get my news from like Washington, you know, or New York, I guess. You know, I, I tend to read national news primarily and then just a little bit of Texas news. Um, and it's striking to me. Have you all seen the um, Wall Street Journal app, uh, Blue Feed, Red Feed? Anybody, anybody seen that? If you haven't seen it, go look it up um, when you get home. And uh, it's, it's really cool because what it does is it shows you how um, certain keywords, immigration, guns, whatever, um, how uh, if Facebook thinks that you're conservative, what your worldview looks like, and if it thinks that you're conservative or you're liberal, what it looks like. And it puts them side by side. And it's fascinating to see how polarized it is, but also to know that there you can see like a similar headline and a similar picture, and one's the left and one's the right, and it's completely um, driven by profit, right? So there are companies that own these websites that will put together the most um, extreme version of any news story. They'll put one, the most extreme liberal, the most extreme conservative, same picture, same story, basically. They just change the lead. And they're doing it to get you know, ad revenue um, and to drive, like, so they attract people by outrage, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it's fascinating to see like how sophisticated the techniques of manipulating us, they're, you're talking about propaganda, right? And so they ask us to treat one another, um, to deny our humanity and to treat one another as polarized partisans who you know, are robots, basically, that can't think for ourselves. And it's really frustrating. Um, so five, five seconds, and that is Sorry. that uh, uh, I live, uh, I'm from, I don't, I don't live there now, but I'm from the state just north of this, the one that people in Massachusetts call flyover country, uh, <laughs> but it actually has a name, Oklahoma, uh, and it, you know, it's the best team in the Big 12, so I mean, I'm gonna, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Oh, I, I just want to say a couple of points. Um, you know, I'm an opinion columnist, which is very different from what Nancy and many of my colleagues are. So um, I also bridle at lefties and journalists being synonymous. Uh, two, I don't think that it's helpful to see, you know, I think I heard you say, you know, they want to take us out of existence. Um, there may be some people, but that is not the vast majority of people. And, and then my last point is I also get very frustrated. Um, and, and, you know, I try to be, um, I try to be an optimist, but, um, but I often hit my head and, and find it very challenging, too. Final question on your left. Hi. My name's Lucy McLaughlin, and thank you very much for this very timely conversation. I'm wondering, um, I have really not heard any of you speak about the fact that we really aren't who we say we are. Historically, to be an American was to be white male Protestant, right? Well, I don't and, know. I'm not well, a Protestant, so I, I wouldn't know. No, but sure. historically, <laughs> historically, that has been true, and I think um, for we are trying to undo the history of white privilege, unaware racism in this country, and to be an American. It's supposed to be liberty and justice for all, but not everybody feels represented. And if you look at Trump's cabinet, I'm hoping it's the last hurrah for white privilege. But the question is, how do we stay civil and be, uncom and be comfortable with being uncomfortable 
so we can have the really tough conversations of who has not been included in this country and who does not feel like they're an American. Well, I, I have, um, excuse me for having some cheap notes, but I, they're relevant to your, to your question, because there was an AP poll that um, came out just the other day, and it says we can't agree on what it means to be an American, and that Republicans are more likely to cite a culture that is grounded in Christian beliefs and the traditions of early European immigrant, immigrants. And Democrats think that our history is about of mixing people and offering refugee, refugee, refuge to the, the persecuted. But then 70% of everybody says we're losing our national identity. So that is what sort of crosses, um, crosses the color line. And uh, I think we need to focus on what we think in common to answer your question. Thank you. And before we end tonight, I just want to pose one final question to the panelists, and that is, um, what does it mean to you to be an American? Well, I said it a little bit earlier, um, out of many, one. What does it mean to be an American? Uh, so I'm a child of an immigrant. Um, my dad's from Malta, and uh, he grew up during World War II when Malta was bombed every day, multiple times a day. Um, and they lived in catacombs under the cemetery that my you know, grandfather dug out by hand. And nobody has a good story from World War II. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's my dad's story in, my, in his childhood. Um, and so for me, like, being an American is about, like, um, a hope, right? The, that things are gonna get better. Uh, but also, like, I get to be a college professor and I had a, a nice, easy childhood and there was no bombs and, you know. <laughs> um, right? And so, so for me, being an American is something like um, a gift, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of said this earlier, but I think um, for me, being an American is the idea that um, who we are and who we share, as much as we have disagreed historically about who constitutes the American people, um, those disagreements remind us that, that being American is not something that is genetic, that it's something that can be argued over, it's something that people can become, it's something that we must work together to achieve. And I think that's, that is, to me, ultimately, what it means to be an American. Uh, very similar to what was said, you know, my family is Polish and Lithuanian Jewish immigrants. Uh, you know, my grandfather, you know, literally pushed a cart through the street selling rags, and uh, uh, and my father grew up in an orphanage, and I got to be a member of Congress. You know, there's not a whole lot of countries where that could happen. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Moderate or not exempt. Um, you know, I guess I would answer similarly to Mickey. Uh, you know, people are always shocked when I tell them my parents didn't graduate from high school. They think my parents were going to be college professors. Um, so I speak to the power of a public education and our opportunity that the United States presents to be whoever you are and to do to be the most that you can be, regardless of where you started. So. For me, it's been a great experience. Great. Thank you so much. That's a great point to end tonight. Um, before we close, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I'd like to thank our co-presenters at the Smithsonian for making tonight's event possible, and also our friends at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston for allowing us to host in this beautiful venue. 
And of course, all of you for sharing your time with us tonight. And I invite all of you to stick around for the reception, which is just upstairs in the North Foyer where you came in. And finally, of course, I want to thank all of our panelists for sharing their insight with us tonight. Let's give them all a big round of applause. <laughs>